Good morning. I want to apologize at the outset for any of you who are disappointed that I'm here solo and not with my friend, Mr. Banana. I know that's more adults than kids that actually feel that way. Um, And I know that from when I was on the parking lot with Mr. Banana, every adult's eyes were six feet to the side of me staring at Mr. Banana no matter what I was talking about or saying and laughing with delight. Also, preachers would often, during the sermons after Mr. Banana's time, would say, as Mr. Banana said, and I'd be like, Mr. Banana didn't say that, I said that. It was good good humility. So, uh, this morning we're coming to God's Word, a really great passage. Every passage of God's Word is great. Uh, Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help before we get rolling. And then we're going to jump in in Luke 2, starting in verse 41. If you don't have a Bible, we have some here. You could probably run to the back or even raise a hand and someone could bring you one. Um, Let's pray first, and then we'll read, starting in Luke 2. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need your help. Uh, The task, even though we do it every week, is no small thing. It's impossible for us to do it without the Spirit joining with the Word and helping us to understand what you have for us and supernaturally apply it to our lives and our hearts and our church in ways that will change us and not merely grow mental capacity for understanding things, but actually change our lives to where we can love you and love others better. So we need your help and pray that you would provide it for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Luke 2, starting in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So our passage is pretty clear. It's just a story. Some commentators call it a pronouncement story. It's a story that has sort of this big point. I'm going to call it the crux. There's a story that's, that's setting up. It's all basically set up. And then there's this really important thing that happens in the story. And in this case, it's the words of Jesus. And it's the words of Jesus revealing the self-awareness that Jesus has of who he is, even though he's a 12-year-old boy. 
So immediately when I started thinking about this passage, it, it caught me. He's a 12-year-old boy. And we all know this. This is a pretty unusual passage. It's the only glimpse we have in all of Scripture of this time period between Jesus' birth and his ministry as an adult, 30-some years old. So all four Gospels, this is the only glimpse we have in this, what I'm calling the tween years of Jesus, right? Between being an infant and between being an adult. And our imagination soars like, are you with me? I would love to know more about Jesus during this time period, right? I'm curious. I'm curious. In fact, that curiosity is not new. It's very common. There was a movie that's been out in the last couple of years called The Young Messiah, and it's about Jesus as an eight-year-old boy. For some reason, he has a British accent. I don't know what's going on there, but it's eight-year-old Jesus. And in The Young Messiah, I did not watch it in my sermon prep, but I read about it. Apparently, young Messiah roams around and heals various people. And we're curious, did Jesus do things like that? And that curiosity is not new. It's not something that we as storytellers now are unique. Within the first couple of hundred years after Jesus' death and resurrection, there were multiple accounts coming up of various sort of stories out there about what young Jesus must have been like. And some of you may have heard some of these. One of these has young Jesus making pigeons out of clay and breathing life into them and them flying away. A couple of them are pretty strange, quite honestly. There's reason that the early church did not adopt these and think, oh, these are canon, this is scripture. One of them, Jesus is walking through the village, young Jesus, and a boy hits him on the shoulder, and Jesus gets mad and kills the kid. I'm not making that up. That's part of the story, which is why the other church is like, yeah, that doesn't really sound like Jesus. In fact, both of the two accounts that I'm talking about, Jesus kills multiple people. One shrivels up a young boy, and then at one point he brings someone back to life that he had killed earlier. And so this fascination with what Jesus must have been like as a young boy and during this time period is not new, but this is what we got. Yeah, we do this all the time, right, with other passages. I've heard people say it multiple times. Um, the, the sermon on the road to when Jesus was with his disciples after his resurrection and he explained all the scriptures, how from the Old Testament to now it pointed to him, right? I've heard pastors say, oh, I'd love to have heard that sermon. I'm with you, I do too. But there's something, with these sorts of skeptical you know, as we're, skeptical is not the right word, but as we're trying to fill in the gaps, there's something kind of going on that's a little bit dangerous and that is, it's not recognizing the sufficiency of God's word. We have what we need from God, right? If we needed that sermon that Jesus preached to those followers, we would have it. We don't need it. If we needed more about Jesus' 30 years, we'd have more. But this is what we got. And it's pretty awesome. One of the things I think is so awesome about it is how subdued it is. There's no miraculous activity here. Now, we're going to see some supernatural activity in the sense of Jesus' self-understanding and how the teachers are marveling at who Jesus is, but there's no healings, there's no levitations, there's nothing in this that if you were watching and you're reading along to think, wow, this seems sort of anticlimactic given what the first two chapters so far of Luke have told us about this child. 
So here's the goal. The goal is pretty straightforward. I want us to, to keep our attention pretty closely to the text as we're getting this, the buildup to the story, to the crux, so we can try to make sure we, we don't miss anything, that we get everything that we should out of that. And then I'm hoping to have a good amount of time 10 minutes, five to 10 minutes at the end to really sort of stop and sort of let the dust settle a little bit and see what the Spirit has for us from this specific passage. So right at the very beginning, Luke is clear to point out something he has already been pointing out in Luke 2, and that is the piety of Jesus's earthly parents. Verse 41, they went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. They went up according to custom. The family that Jesus grew up in was accustomed to regularly following the practices of the day. We see that already. We've already seen that in the passage that preceded this. The idea that in verse 42 that Jesus is 12 years old, let's not let that be missed on us because 12 is a pretty important year even in this time for a Jewish young boy. It was the last year before they were to take upon themselves the responsibility to become following the law. It was essentially the bridge year between childhood and being treated under the law as an adult. We didn't have during this time period things like bar mitzvahs, but it's sort of obviously the early stages of something like that. Hey, you have now entered into adulthood. And so what would typically be the case with a 12-year-old boy is it would be a very consistent strategic year for the father to be spending time studying Torah with his son in this preparation for adulthood. And I, 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 I spent some time thinking about this before. I love thinking about Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, training and teaching his child, his son, in the law. Because you know that that's what happened. Everything we know about Joseph is that he was a man of action. He was a man who did what God asked him to do. Jo I, Joseph's a, I love Joseph. You know, really, Joseph has no lines in the Bible. Zero. I wonder, if I were Joseph, let me put it that way, if I were Joseph, I'd be like, wait, I spent, and we don't know how many years after this that Joseph must have passed away is our thought, because by the time Jesus shows up at 30, Joseph is no longer in the picture, right? But at least the first 12 years, how many hours upon hours Joseph has spent with Jesus and trained Jesus and taught Jesus and encouraged Jesus and whatever else? I was going to say dis discipline, but you don't have to discipline a sinless child. And then... Peter gets all the lines in the New Testament, right? Peter's sort of a knucklehead at times. I can really relate to Peter. So Peter is sort of like, has a lot of lines. Joseph spent all this time with Jesus, and Joseph has no lines, but I don't think Joseph really cares. But the point is, is that you've got Jesus at 12 years old being discipled, being mentored by his father building into the man that Jesus will be. There's no doubt that God uses. That's why we have in this exact passage, Jesus through this process is increasing in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. So what do we see here? We see that they've, they've traveled. It's about 80 miles 
from where they lived to Jerusalem. That's roughly about as if we as a church all lived, you know, almost to San Diego, like somewhere around Carlsbad. And then we decided it would be fun to hike as a church up the coast, because you don't want to walk up the five. So you walk up the coast, down to, um, to the beach, and then we come straight up Beach Avenue. That's roughly 80 miles. So that's about the journey time that they took all together. And they, they did it as a group, right, for safety, because there would be marauders along the way. And so that's why the group is large. And so they go on what's essentially this long 80-mile trek, according to custom. And when Luke's telling this story, it's, it's interesting to me because I've heard this story so many times and I think I've heard it preached a few times and my emotion gets wrapped up with the fear that the parents must have felt realizing that their child is lost. And that's an understandable thing as a father of four and even as a child, just that, that feeling of being separated and not knowing where someone is. But really in the retelling of the story, Luke's not really poking at that. It's sort of just stating the facts as they are, Right? When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. It's very factual. We don't know if Jesus deliberately stayed behind or if he accidentally stayed behind. We don't know if there was confusion or if it was intentional. And Luke doesn't seem to care or doesn't think we should care. The facts are the group leaves, Jesus stays. About a day in, Mary and Joseph realize, where's Jesus? It's understandable. It's a little bit, you know, it's, it's, part of us could be like, how can you lose your kid for a day? But it's sort of understandable when you think about the way that the group's all traveling together. He's a 12-year-old boy. Is he going to be with the kids? Is he going to be with the adults? Is he going to be with the men? Is he going to be with the women? Everybody's assuming he's one place when he's another. When my family travels, we typically go back to Oklahoma or New Mexico with my brother's family who is in Oklahoma and we meet them there. We have four kids. My brother has eight kids. So we'll be at a hike or something like that and we'll jump in two or three vehicles and we'll head out and invariably I'll get a phone call from my brother. Jace, uh, do you have Tempe? Do you have Benjamin? Like he's doing the accounting of, wait, 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 because kids just scramble into different vehicles and where's my kids? And, you know, we haven't, I don't think we've left anyone yet, but I wouldn't be surprised had we left someone thinking someone was in my car when they're in someone else's car. And that's basically what happened here. And the text says that they're a day's journey away. So on our journey that we have presented, it's basically as if we are almost to Newport Beach by the time the parents realize Jesus is not with them. They think that they could go anywhere from 20 to 25 miles in a day's journey. So during the day, they're assuming, oh, Jesus is with us. Um, I think part of the point there is Jesus has been such a good 12-year-old boy that the assumption is, well, of course he's with us, right? He's pretty responsible. He's usually on top of things. He's not the kind of kid who's just going to miss the, the train leaving, and I imagine even in my mind, in, in our family situation at least, this is how it would work, um, my wife would become nervous at least an hour before I would become nervous about the situation. And I would find myself in a situation like, I oh, don't worry about it, they're fine. And then I would regret immediately when I realized, oh, I've, I've promised something that I cannot keep. Because what you have here is you have Jesus gone, he stayed behind as Luke tells us, and the family continues down. 
And when they get a full day's journey away, 20 miles, they realize it. So then they have to do a full day's journey back. And then they find in the third day, they find him in Jerusalem. Most commentators think that's the three days. It's not that once they got back to Jerusalem, then they were searching for him for an additional three days, (laughs) that there was a day's journey down, a day's journey back. And in the third day, they find him. When they find him, this is where the story starts to get more interesting. It's still not yet the crux of the passage. The crux is when Jesus speaks and what that reveals about who he is and what he understands about himself. But when they find him, the text is very clear. After three days in verse 46, they found him in the temple, sitting among the elders, listening to them and asking them questions. I did some work on this passage a number of years ago, and I realized that my mental picture of Jesus in the temple did not match with what the Bible said. In other words, my mental picture that I had carried around from who knows how long was not of Jesus sort of being one of the students sitting and listening just as you would have expected a normal student to be. It was something more like Jesus was standing and maybe lecturing and everyone was sitting at his feet as he was doing the teaching. And the way that the teaching was, particularly back then, was much more student and teacher questions, dialogues back and forth. It wasn't a lot of lecturing anyway. And I started to do some very intense research, primarily through YouTube, to figure out where this mental image had come to me. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. Let's show the first image. This is from the 1977 movie. Oh, it's over here. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth that used to come on as a TV miniseries whenever I was a little boy growing up. And in Jesus of Nazareth, this exactly, that was the mental image that had stuck in my head. The teachers are sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus is lecturing, probably has a microphone on his face, just like the one I'm wearing right now. Then I got curious, and I continued down this rabbit hole of YouTube research. Um, I get on to my children. My sons tend to really, you know, they'll, anything they're curious about, they'll YouTube it, and I make fun of them, and this is exactly what I'm modeling for them right now. This is what I've done as well, so I realized the irony of that this morning. So I started looking at other, th- what, how are other representations of Jesus, this scene that we have in various things. So it's our second image. I can't remember which one's which. Oh, this is an animated series of uh, 100 Bible stories, um, and I just found this one. Here's yet another, Jesus standing, disciples, or not disciples, but the teachers sitting. Luke is very clear. He's using, throughout Luke, it's usually the scribes and the teachers, but here he wants it to be sort of neutral. They're not yet bad guys. Later in Luke, the scribes and the teachers become those who oppose Jesus, but here they're just sort of the teachers. And here is another scene of Jesus standing and teachers saying, my, my only point is this, is, and they get better as we go, but not only do we speculate, and that can be somewhat dangerous to what's in the text, then not only can we do that, we can literally just sort of miss what the text is trying to help us understand. Not that Jesus walks in and takes over, but that he's coming in and he's doing very normal things, sitting and listening, and what's alarming and amazing to the teachers is not that he's standing and lecturing, it's that the wisdom from his comments. What's the third one? Oh, this is an old painting. Jesus, at this point now, we don't want to nitpick. He's standing. What's, I think the fourth one's my favorite one. Yeah, this is a, uh, I'm going to give this one a pass because 
this is a YouTube video where someone, it's a stop motion, right? And you don't have a Jesus that's sitting and a Jesus that's standing. You only have a Jesus that's standing and it would look weird to have him laying down. Um, my favorite thing about this one is the stop motion is, it's, it's like they're, they're deliberately, and at one point when he gets done teaching, all the teachers leave and then Jesus does a circle and then he walks off, right? Because that's the way you have to do it in stop motion. So we'll give this one a pass. What's the next one? It's going to start getting a little bit better. This is from the Jesus movie uh, that's been translated all over the world. Here he is sitting, right? Now he's raised, and I understand why visually you want to raise, because we want to highlight who he is. This one's much closer to the text, isn't it? Sitting, asking questions. This is right as Mary and Joseph are walking up and finding him. What's the next one? This is another animated version. Here he's sitting in a chair, but he's sitting. He's got a nice nose in this picture. Uh, all right, next, I think the last one. The last one, so this is, um, I can't even remember what this, oh, this is from a, uh, a, a movie that's relatively recent, and this, to me, is a really good representation of, here's a 12-year-old boy sitting in the midst with the others, asking questions, and there's nothing remarkable about the scene. We can turn it off now. Right, there's nothing remarkable about the fact that Jesus is sitting and listening. So the thing that the teachers are surprised about, in verse 47, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It had nothing to do with the posture he was in or probably even the volume at which he was answering questions. It was the wisdom of this 12-year-old boy. And the, the, the word that Luke uses here is the same word, amazed. If we, when we, as we're going to continue going through Luke, notice how the word amazed is typically a response of when people see something supernatural after a healing, after something else that Jesus does that reveals who Jesus really is. And then the crowd is amazed. And here we have that same use. They're amazed. Their expectations of this 12-year-old boy are exceeded to the point that they recognize something different is happening here. His parents have a different response in 48. Uh, they're not amazed. The word is not amazement with them. When his parents see him, right, they've been searching from three days, they were astonished. It's a different word. Probably has a little bit of a, of, you know, we can imagine there's some relief, but the word itself is almost more like, you know, almost frustration a little bit, right? It's almost like, finally, we're relieved, but we're also like, okay, here, here he is. We're astonished at this. His mother says to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. We're to 48 now, and that's the entire setup, right? This, that's the story being set up for us so that we can really get to what's going on when Jesus in 49 says something that's quite remarkable, because that's the crux of the passage. The whole point of the story is not for us to, to walk away from it thinking, all right, when I travel, I want to keep my kids with me. The point of the story is not, oh, man, I would really like my kid to be the one who impresses the Sunday school teachers. The point of the story is Jesus at 12 years old has a supernatural self-awareness of who he is and what his mission is. 
Now, we don't know much more than that. We don't know exactly what Jesus knows at this point in time. We don't know what he knows now versus his baptism or even in the garden before he's going. Like, we don't understand what he knows content-wise and with detail, but we do know that he knows something about his relationship with God the Father and his mission. And the play on words that Luke gives us is really interesting. Mary says, son, why have you treated us? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The emphasis on the father. Once again, Joseph, no lines. Silent Joseph. Jesus said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There's a play of words on father here. Jesus is saying, I don't think that Jesus is chastising. I don't think that he's, you typically write this line for a 12-year-old that's going to be sort of smart aleck, right? Well, why were you looking for me or something like that? I don't think that's going on. I think Jesus is surprised. Like, did you forget that my mission is different than normal 12-year-old boys? So my father was looking for me, Joseph, but I was in my father's house. The translation, some people translate it about my father's business. It seems like the preferred translation is in my father's house, but they both really make the whole point. The point is, Jesus is saying, why are you surprised that I'm here? Didn't you know this is, that this is the person, God the Father is who I am about and where I would be? And the self-awareness here is actually really remarkable. And I think that the self-awareness is one of the reasons that the passage follows with confusion by Mary and Joseph. And once again, this whole passage, we, we could pretty, be pretty harsh with Mary and Joseph. Like, well, how did you lose your kid? How did you forget that he was the Messiah? That's the whole first two chapters has been all about. Because when Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Verse 50 says, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They were confused. I think that's actually a hint that Jesus' first 12 years of his life has been relatively unremarkable up to that point. If on the way there Jesus had killed and healed people, then they'd be like, oh, that's right. He's kind of an interesting, different kid. But instead, I feel like he's lived a fairly normal 12-year-old boy's life to the point that even despite his miraculous birth and everything that's gone about in the first chapters that we've read, 12 years have transpired of which their child has been completely normal and to the point that he literally is reminding them with kindness, why would you be looking for me? Wouldn't you know that I would be about my father's business? It also could be the case that they're confused at this point because the Holy Spirit has hidden it from them. Luke does that. He tells us that explicitly a couple of different times throughout. We'll see it when we get there about the disciples. Various times Jesus would say, hey, a couple of times he says it straight up. We're going to go to Jerusalem and this is what's going to happen. And then Luke adds in, but the disciples did not understand it because it was hidden from them. I think that's Luke's way of saying these guys weren't idiots. These guys weren't stupid that God supernaturally didn't want them to quite get it, not yet. So that whenever he opens their eyes, which happens at the end of Luke, they can fully understand all things. So that might have been what's going on. But I think a lot of what's just going on is when Jesus' divinity is revealed throughout Jesus' life, it's met by confusion. Even to the disciples, right? Think about the transfiguration. The guys who hang out with Jesus all the time 
There's a, there's a bolt of his divinity. And there's not only confusion in that passage, at least the way I believe it's the way Matthew reports it is, they're terrified of Jesus. Or when Jesus calms the storm and the response is confusion. It's, it's like even anyone who knows who Jesus is and spends time with Jesus, whenever they're reminded of the divinity of Jesus, it's almost always met with confusion or fear or not understanding. And I think we do the same thing ourselves. Sometimes that we are, when we're reminded that Jesus is in control of all things of our life that we walk through, we respond with confusion as well. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. So you have the setup. Where's Jesus? We found Jesus. The teachers are amazed. Then we have the crux, Jesus saying, hey, I am self-aware that I should be in my father's house and about my father's business. And then after that, the passage completely is anticlimactic once again. So the emphasis in the passage, it feels to me, is, hey, Jesus is fully God, but he's still a boy. Because what happens next? Well, they're, they're confused. And then 51, they went down with him. I'm sorry, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Luke's helping us understand this is not Jesus being sinful or, or, or not obeying the authority of his parents. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Not too dissimilar from the kind of growth that we see from John just a few verses ahead. So we have this balance, and we see it all the way through the Gospels, and particularly in the Gospel of Luke as we continue moving. Jesus is fully God, and it's amazing. And the teachers are amazed by it as if he had performed a miracle because they recognize there's something miraculous going on with this 12-year-old boy. And then after that, life goes seems back to normal, back to Nazareth, back with his parents, submitting to them, growing, learning, understanding, anticlimactic. So that's basically the entire text. What I want to do is spend the last few minutes trying to sort of sink our teeth, try to, try to meditate a little bit on what we might be able to get out of this. And, and what I feel like the, the Spirit wants, wants us to think about together is the connections of the expectations of Jesus and the understanding and awareness of what he does. And it's, it's, so here we have a couple of different stories. The, the easiest one, or the very first one at least, is the expectations that the teachers have of a 12-year-old boy, right? They're expecting him to be a normal 12-year-old boy. We have, um, I started thinking about who in our church is an expert at 12-year-old boys, and I immediately thought of my good friend Jan Buck, who's been teaching our Sunday school curriculum to fourth and fifth graders for over 20 years now. So I asked Jan to write a little something, and she, of course, wrote more than what I asked for, which I knew she would do that too, because I love Jan. I knew it would come. And I said, can you just give some observations of the 12-year-old boys that have been through your class and sort of, you know, just so we can kind of understand your expertise of 12-year-old boys. And if I wanted to go a full 45 minutes, I would not only read her whole letter, we would do exegesis on it because it's delightful, but I'm only going to read parts of it because it, it really is great because this is, this is someone that's in the trenches with 12-year-old boys. She says, most boys in fifth grade are antsy, requiring wisdom from the teacher to know when to rein them in and when a little naughty is okay. Typically, the girls are more mature acting, in quotes, 
in the sense that they are calm and mostly non-disruptive. I love this sentence. That does not mean they are getting the lesson, so a different wisdom is needed to see if anything is getting into their well-behaved heads. (laughs) There's a lot of wisdom in that paragraph alone. So the expectation that... My favorite sentence, Jan, and the whole thing is it starts the third paragraph. Both boys and girls respond well to bribes. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read that. <laughs> Talking about if they bring their Bibles and whatever else. Um, so the expectations of the teachers are of an anti 12-year-old boy. That expectation is exceeded to the point that they are amazed. I think more illustrative for us is what are the expectations of Mary and Joseph. And how do we see that play out in this passage? And I think this is super interesting. The expectations of Mary and Joseph are that Jesus is going to be a good son. And we know Jesus is sinless, so therefore he is a good son. He doesn't fail in that regard. But Jesus' primary mission is not to make sure he meets the expectations of Mary and Joseph. Do you understand what's going on? Mary's expectation as voice is, why did you do this to us, Jesus? Why have you treated us so? My expectation of you is that you would be a good son and that you wouldn't make me nervous and you wouldn't make me frightened and you wouldn't break my heart and I wouldn't have to stand at the foot of the cross and watch you die. That's my expectation of you, Jesus. And as we've already seen in the book, Mary's heart's going to be broken. Why? Because Jesus' mission is not primarily to meet the expectation of us or of Mary or of the teachers or of the disciples or of those who are waiting for the Messiah to be a different kind of Messiah than the one that he was called to be. So Jesus' mission is not to meet our expectations, Mary's expectations. His mission is something so much more important that taps so much more into this being fully God and fully man. And there are times throughout the Gospels that Jesus' friends, Jesus' family, are confused by that. And I think we get confused by that as well. So Mary's expectations are that Jesus will be a good boy, be a good son, not make her nervous, not make her frightened, Jesus' mission is different than that. I am about my father's, I am at my father's house and about my father's business. I'm going to be a good son. I'm going to submit. I'm going to obey. But my obedience to you is not the primary mission. The primary mission is greater to my heavenly father. I think we get something really nice here in, in, in Mary's story, and this is what I want to apply to us, and that is, Mary, however she's feeling when she says this, she's, she's at least stating, I'm in distress. Why have you done this to us? So let's, let's, let's interpret it as almost a rebuke. Like, Jesus, why did you do this to us? Why did you make me nervous? And then Jesus says, well, you know, my mission's not really all only to meet your needs. I have a greater mission. At which her response in this text is confusion, understandably. But then we get this little glimpse later on, too. We're not done with hearing what Mary's at, where her heart is, because we hear in uh, the very end of of verse 51, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. 
Like as later in life, looking back on the story, she's, she's no longer frustrated. She's not still feeling that negative emotion of Jesus not doing what I wanted him to do. But instead, she's able to look on that back now and say, oh, I can treasure these. I treasure this. Even though in the moment I felt frustration and confused, I was confused, now looking back, I recognize his mission was more important than what I wanted him to be doing. This is what I want to ask us. What are your expectations of Jesus right now? Do you expect, wow, if I follow Jesus, then my relationships will go well and my financial situation should be strong and my health situation I shouldn't have to struggle with this. I shouldn't have to deal with this. And those are not bad things to think, but that might not be what Jesus' primary mission is, to meet your expectations. And that's what we see throughout the scriptures, that Jesus is not here to meet the expectations of the people because they had one Messiah in mind and he came up to do an entirely different mission that was so much more wonderful than anything they could have imagined. And let's follow Mary's pattern here. Let's follow the pattern of being able to say to Jesus, Jesus, this was my expectation. This is what I want you to do. And you didn't do it. And now I'm frustrated and I'm trying to deal with this and I'm confused. But at the end of the day, I'm going to treasure you. I'm going to treasure what you're doing. And I'm going to try to grasp for the gospel. I'm going to try to grasp for the big picture of what you're doing. And even though I might be facing something in my life that's difficult and hard right now, and I'm expecting you to do something with that situation right now, I'm going to fight to struggle to to remind myself of the mission that Jesus had and has already accomplished on the cross. Because that's really where we live, isn't it? That's, that's the struggle. The struggle that we have now is those things, the thing that we're facing tomorrow or next week or next year, whatever they may be, those we, we want to focus our attention on those to the point that we are tempted to forget what Jesus has already accomplished for us on the cross. And that our faith in him and our treasuring him in that is what can permit and allow us to make it through whatever these things are that we're about to face. So that's what I want to encourage us to do. I want us to remember the primary passage. The primary point of this passage is Jesus' self-awareness that he is fully God, fully man, and what our expectations of that so we can bring those into light with Scripture and that we can therefore walk into whatever struggles and frustrations and difficulties that God has before us in new confidence that Jesus' mission might not be to meet my every need, but his mission is to care for my greatest needs. And he's already accomplished that. And that is available to me through faith in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are grateful that um, you had a mission that you were single-minded about pursuing for our benefit. And we are grateful that you care for us in the ways that we need the most care And we pray, God, that you would help remind us of that even in these weeks as we are facing whatever it is that we're facing, that we would be gospel-centered people, that our hope would be built on your grace to us and nothing else, that you'd give us the confidence and the perseverance to make it through what you have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.